Father, we have heard your word read. We are about to hear it preached. Would you send your spirit now to open our minds, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe what you have for us in your word. And Lord, through that, would you change us? Would you work in us that we might be conformed more and more into your image, that we might see more and more your glory in the face of your son, Jesus? We ask this in his name. Amen. So we've been in a study in the book of Daniel, going chapter by chapter. And in chapter 4, we heard the testimony of a pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar, whom God had given great power and glory, an expansive rule in this magnificent kingdom, which, which is still considered one of the greatest in history, whom God had raised up to bring His promised judgment upon His own people in their exile to Babylon. And who, as we saw last week, God humbled in His pride, causing Him to go mad for a season before restoring his reason and his reign over the great Babylonian, Babylonian Empire. And Nebuchadnezzar's last recorded words in chapter 4, verse 37, right before the passage we read are, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That's quite an amazing testimony. But unfortunately, it's one which did not have much impact on his descendants. Because following Nebuchadnezzar's death in 562 B.C., after reigning for 43 years, and following several lesser-known rulers who reigned for shorter periods, a man named Nabonidus and his son, Belshazzar, rose to power, sharing what historians believe was a, a sort of co-regency during the final years of the Babylonian Empire. And it's not known exactly the relationship of Belshazzar to Nebuchadnezzar, although some scholars think he may have been a grandson, perhaps, from his mother's side, which would account for Nebuchadnezzar being referred to by Daniel as Belshazzar's father or his, his ancestor. But here in Daniel, immediately following Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of God's patience and His sovereign rule and His reign over all the earth, chapter 5 fast-forwards some 25 years, and it opens with King Belshazzar throwing a great feast that in itself is the very height of pride and arrogance, of rebellion and ridicule towards that same God, the King of Heaven. And as a result, the night would end in his death. And the destruction or the, the, uh, the downfall of his kingdom. And once again... The purpose of this account, as we've, as we've seen throughout Daniel, is to comfort the exiles of Daniel's day, to encourage God's people, including us, who would live under the reign of earthly kings and kingdoms to come that were equally opposed to God, and to remind those kings and kingdoms that God alone has all wisdom and might and power and glory. That God alone sets up and brings down kings and kingdoms that God indeed will humble the proud who oppose him 
and will exalt the humble who honor him. He is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But He is also the one who by no means will clear the guilty. And here, as we see in Belshazzar's case, God's patience has an ending point. A place where, where, uh, and time where mercy ends and judgment begins. And we do well to heed the warning of God's Word, to read the writing on the wall, so to speak, and to seek God's grace and to live for His glory. A grace and a glory that come through the life and death of another King. King Jesus, who took God's judgment for our sin. And that's the message of Daniel 5. The scene opens at a party, and and what a party it was. King Belshazzar is putting on a feast for thousands of his his lords, and the wine was flowing, the music is playing, the, the women were dancing. And we find King Belshazzar is right in the middle of it, lifting up his glass and and strutting his stuff for all to see. Now there's nothing unusual about a king in that day throwing a great feast or a big party. But in this case, there are two things that make Belshazzar's behavior stand out. One that we we see here in this account and one that we do not see. The thing we do not see here is that at this very moment, according to what we know from history, the Persian army, the army of the Medes and the Persians is encamped outside the massive walls of the city of Babylon and has the whole city under siege. The thing we do see is Belshazzar, under the illusion of power, under the intoxication of much wine, sending for the vessels of gold and silver, which some 70 years earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar, as you remembered, had brought out of the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and put them in the the treasury of his own, the treasure house of his own gods as the spoils of conquest. And now, Belshazzar calls for these sacred vessels which numbered in the thousands, we're told, and they were holy to the God of Israel. And he calls for them to be filled with wine and he begins handing them out to his drunken guests like party favors to raise a toast to their gods, which ironically are themselves made, or idols made of nothing more than gold and silver and iron and wood. And at Belshazzar's party, we see the height of man's pride and arrogance, feasting and drinking as if he's invincible flaunting his perceived power while while a formidable enemy lies ready to bring down his kingdom. Effectively spitting in the face of and mocking the honor and power of the God whose divine power he knew had so effectively humbled and impacted his predecessor, the greatest king of Babylon. And yet, such pride and arrogance are not limited to powerful rulers or pagan kings. It runs deep in the heart of mankind. And left unchecked, it leads to the downward spiral that we see in in Nebuchadnezzar's case and that Paul so accurately describes in Romans 1.18. There he speaks of God's wrath being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. 
For His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in the things He has made. So men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. And therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's Belshazzar's party in a nutshell. And that's an accurate description of the, of the pride and arrogance that we see all around us in, in so many of the leaders and the culture shapers of our own day. And indeed, if we're honest, it's what we see often reflected in our own hearts. In our own fascination and pursuit of the, of the countless idols and icons of this world that are, are readily available to us at the, at the swipe of a finger on a screen. How easily we can suppress the truth of God that is, that is written plainly in the realities of creation. That is revealed to us in this day in His Word. And find ourselves immersed in the futile thinking and the foolish behavior that are put forth as truth and virtue in our society. But are in reality a destructive lie. And as soon as the wine has been poured... And the holy vessels of God were raised in toast to the gods of Babylon. The God of Israel shows up. He shows up in the form of a, of a human hand appearing in the room. And, and a finger goes out and begins to write on the plaster wall right next to the lampstand for all to see. And as you can imagine, the party changed right there. And Belshazzar's demeanor changes. His, his face, which was red with wine, goes suddenly white with fear. His arms that were raised high in a, in a toast to his gods now falls limp by his side in terror before the God of heaven. It's not really captured in the English translation, but the Hebrew here says that, that literally his loins were loose, meaning that he likely soiled himself out of fear. God crashes this party and writes a message on the wall that the king and all his wise men cannot interpret. But thankfully the queen, or more likely the queen mother, as she's not taking part in all the revelry here, uh, hears the commotion going on and she comes into the party and she reminds the king of a man who served in his father's court. A man full of the Spirit of God who shed light and wisdom and understanding upon the dreams and the, and the problems of Nebuchadnezzar. One of the exiles from Judah, a man named Daniel, who still resides in the kingdom. And the queen says, he can tell you what the interpretation is. And so Belshazzar sends for Daniel, who by this time is probably somewhere in his 80s. And he promises him wealth, he promises him power and prestige if he can tell him the meaning of the message on the wall. And Daniel's been down this road before. And he says, King, keep your gifts. I'm not in it for the money. 
He's not concerned with what this king can give him, but what the king of heaven has already given to him. And so he gives Belshazzar a little history lesson. He reminds him of how the greatness and the glory of his father, Nebuchadnezzar's vast kingdom, were not of his own doing. but They were gifts from the Most High God. Babylon was great, he says, because God was gracious. Nebuchadnezzar had great power that impacted all of creation because the God of creation had granted it to him. And when his heart was hardened and and pride got the best of him, God had humbled him until, as Daniel says in verse 21, he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it who he will. So he gives him this history lesson, a reminder of what he already knew. And then Daniel lays the charge at Belshazzar's feet. You, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. In other words, you're not in control any more than your father Nebuchadnezzar was in control. God is in control. All you have, all you are is a result of God's sovereign power and grace. Your predecessor learned that the hard way. But he learned it. You should have learned it from those who went before you. But instead, Daniel says, you've taken what is the Lord's and you have profaned His name. You have drunk merrily to gods who cannot see or hear or know anything. But the God who does see and who hears and knows all things, who holds your very breath in His hand, Him you have dishonored. See, Belshazzar's chief sin was ignoring what was plainly obvious. What God had revealed to be true and thumbing his nose at the Lord of heaven in whose hand is held the very breath of life. He did not honor God as God. And so Daniel interprets the writing on the wall. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. God is sovereign even over the very days of your life. He knows the number of them before you are born. The span of your life has been marked on God's calendar since time eternal. And your time will come. And Belshazzar's time had come. God knows every one of our days. And the question is, how will we use them? Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. The picture here is of a a weighted scale like you might see in the marketplace. And and, uh, on one side is is God's standard of measure. His perfection, the weight of His righteousness, the the heaviness of His glory. And on the other is, is your life, your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions. And guess what? They don't even tip the scale. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the weight of God's perfections. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Your rule, Belshazzar, your reign, your kingdom and accomplishments will be given over to another. 
All that we have and do in our own strength and for our own glory will not last. Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall. He hears the judgment of God, and yet he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. The first thing he does is reward Daniel with the prestige and the power of his kingdom that he had promised him, something which is going to last about three more hours. God's patience had run its course, and that very night his judgment would come in the form of of another pagan king, Darius, also known as Cyrus, whose, whose army had, uh, during this time, diverted the river Euphrates that ran right under the wall and right through the middle of Babylon. And as the river dried up, that very night they entered through the dried up culverts. And before the night ends, Belshazzar is dead and Babylon has fallen. It's reminiscent of Jesus' parable of the man who built bigger and bigger barns for his possessions. And he said to him, you fool, that very night, this very night your soul will be demanded of you. The reality is that even this judgment is the sovereign hand of God fulfilling what he promised and what he alone can accomplish. You see, the writing on the wall actually happened long before the night of this party. If you turn back to Jeremiah 51, we won't go there to read this, but the last chapter of that great prophet's book, written to the, to the exiles of Babylon some 60 years before this very incident, God details in great detail the destruction of Babylon. And listen to what he says in verses 38 and 39 of Jeremiah 51. They shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions' cubs. While they are inflamed, I will prepare them a feast and make them drunk, that they may become merry and then sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, declares the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and male goats. Even Belshazzar's party was the plan of God to reveal His wrath on the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The writing was on the wall. And brothers and sisters, God has not just written a few words on a wall for you and me. He has recorded His words in His book. He has revealed Himself not only in in what He has made, but in what He has done and what He has said throughout history. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us even of Israel's own rebellion against God in the wilderness. And this is what he says. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So do not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and died. Do not put Christ to the test or grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the age has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
And friends, we have plenty of other examples in our own day, in every arena of life, and perhaps even in our own life of those who who stand in pride and are brought down in judgment. But praise the Lord, we have a greater witness. We have a greater testimony. In our day, God has gone beyond writing on the wall. He has shown up. He has spoken through His Son, Jesus, the living Word, who has come not just to warn us of the day of God's judgment, but to deliver us from that day. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and sin that entangles and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, we do have an enemy at the gate. Sin lurks at the door of our heart, just waiting for an opportunity to take advantage of our weakness. Satan will do what he can to to stoke our pride or to to magnify our despair and take advantage of our weaknesses, to intoxicate us with the empty pleasures and promises that this world has to offer. And the question is, will we heed the writing on the wall? God is no different than He was in Daniel's days. Our days are numbered. Our lives are in the balance, are weighed in the balance of God's glory and holiness. And we have been found wanting. The enemy of our soul stands at the gate. But our God has provided a way of escape. He sent another king. An exile in this world from the tribe of Judah. His very own son. And Jesus came to warn us of the coming judgment of sin, but also to bear that judgment for us in His own death for sin. On the cross, Jesus stepped on the scales of God's justice for us. His life was weighed in the balance and found perfect, sufficient, utterly worthy. And then... He willingly was led like a lamb to the slaughter for you and me. And on the cross, King Jesus also uttered four words. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is Jesus was forsaken by God. For you and for me. Belshazzar was forsaken by God and drank the cup of his wrath for his own foolish pride and sin. Jesus, who was the very vessel of God's holiness, pours himself out and drinks down the cup of God's wrath. But not for his sin, for yours and mine. Two kings dying at the hands of God. One holding a feast and and raising a cup in pride to, to toast his own glory and greatness, only to have his life cut off and his kingdom removed. The other willingly being cut off, laying down his life in submission to and for the glory of God so that sinners like you and me would receive a greater kingdom And come to a greater feast 
that will last to eternity. So the question is, which king will you follow? Will you go the way of Belshazzar, ignoring the clear testimony of God's sovereignty and holiness, turning a blind eye to, the, to what He has revealed of Himself and to us in His Word and in His Son, pursuing the false gods of pleasure and power, wealth and fame that are empty and meaningless and will ultimately forsake you? Or will you follow the way of Jesus? who is the way and the truth and the life, who has revealed the very nature of God and has prepared a way for you into His kingdom and has set a place at His table for you where there is true joy, true riches, true power that are greater than any in this world. You see, it's King Jesus that invites you to come to Him. To heed the writing on the wall, to acknowledge that your days are numbered, as are mine. To recognize that you fall short of the glory and the measure of God's holiness, as we all do. To confess that you are worthy of God's judgment and to humble yourself at the mercy and the grace of God for you in Christ. Come to Him. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Live for Him. and He receives you with open arms and welcomes you into His kingdom, which will stand forever and ever. And it's to His table now that we come. To His banquet that we are invited. We come to His feast to receive forgiveness, to receive mercy and grace and provision and power. All that are written on the walls of our heart in His blood. Which He shed for us on the cross. So as we come to this table, let us come remembering. And rejoicing that the kingdoms of this world will give way. To the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. And let us seek His provision, His power. Let us feast upon Him. And let us live for His honor and His glory, knowing that King Jesus reigns and that our God is sovereign forever and ever. Let us pray together. Lord, we often come to passages like this thinking that they are about another time and another place. That they speak to the heart and the, the sins of others. And yet you call us to see in your word a reflection not only of who you are, but who we are. And Lord, we recognize in the heart of Belshazzar, in the gathering of this feast, a pride and an arrogance, a rebellion of which we ourselves are so prone, perhaps not on such a large scale, but even in the very hidden details of our lives. And yet, O oh God, You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Son, Jesus. And because of His death, we can now come 
as those who are redeemed and rescued and restored into fellowship with you and who are now welcomed by you, even here, to this table, to this place where you are present, where you will strengthen and nourish us. So we pray now that you would do that, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us, not only in your word, heard and preached, but in your word, seen and participated in, in this sacrament. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.